All right. Hey, everyone. I'm Lisa Hahn, a former early stage startup employee and seed investor. And on this podcast, we'll be exploring conversations with founders around early successes as well as struggles of company building at the earliest stage. And so today I'm really excited because I'm here with a special guest and a really good friend, Peter Zhao, who also happens to be a former coworker, uh, who is the CEO of Rudder. Peter, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Lisa. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for context for everyone, we were coworkers at Atrium, which was a legal tech startup back in the day. Um, Peter, do you remember when you joined? This was a while uh, ago. Yeah, I think this was like, I was... I was there from uh, January to July 2019, I think. So I was actually still a junior in college at that point uh, and decided to just take some time off and go out to the Bay Area and go join a startup. I think there was a funny, I remember there was a funny story behind it. How did you get in touch with the Atrium team? <laughs> yeah. um, so one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to join Atrium, um, I I look up to uh, Justin Kahn, a uh, very famous founder. Um, he just posted a lot about <clears throat> his journey at Twitch uh, and his journey starting a bunch of other things. And so uh, followed him on Snapchat, actually. And one of the days, <laughs> one of his Snapchat posts was uh, that they were hiring uh, at Atrium. And so actually hit him up on Snapchat uh, and then got his email and took it from there. Wow, what a hustler. <laughs> and yeah, you were, uh, I remember you were our second intern, and we tried to convince you to drop out, but you decided not to, to go back to Yale. And probably for the better, right? Because you, you got to spend more time with your, your current co-founder, Eric. Yeah, I mean, it was a really tough decision. I think um, it was certainly really tempting to drop out. Uh, being honest at that time, if I dropped out, my parents would absolutely have murdered me. Uh, so looking back, probably the right decision to continue my last year of college. Well, um, so fast forwarding to now, why don't you start off by telling us who, you know, you are, how you grew up and also a little bit about Rudder in general. Yeah, sure. Um, Man, there's a lot there. So uh, who I am, uh, I'm Peter. Um, I'm, I'm the CEO of Rudder. We build a commerce infrastructure. Uh, so you can think of us as a lot like Plaid plus segment for all of the different storefronts, marketplaces, payment processors, and accounting platforms that are out there. Um, how we got started, uh, and I'll just give a really brief overview and stop if you want to dig into anything really deep. Um, basically, uh, went through Yale, Yale class of 2019, um, actually joined college as a chemistry major. Uh, I think <laughs> I always had some dream of being a doctor uh, or like a chemistry professor really early on. And then uh, going into a lab for the first time, realized I just absolutely hated it. Uh, and so Somewhere, uh, you know, late freshman year, sophomore year, transferred into uh, computer science. Um, and then, yeah, I just like really fell in love with um, the fast pace and like the amount of responsibility you had to take uh, running a startup. And so really enjoyed the startup scene. Um, 
me and my co-founder Eric, we went through YC summer 19 after graduation, had a really long pivot journey, and then ended upon Rudder like a year ago. Well, and so before we dive into questions specifically on Rudder uh, and the fundraise process, let's rewind back to the journey of scaling Rudder as a result from the many, if I'm remembering, six pivots before landing on the idea. Oh, <laughs> <So>. man. Yeah. <laughs> it it really did. De- go ahead. Super interesting. But even before that, so you started laying API with Eric First, how did you meet Eric? And also, because you guys were in college, like what really gave you the conviction to start something with him, given that, I mean, the both of you never really worked professionally together with each other? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so uh, let's see. Eric was probably like my third friend uh, in college. So in college, um, especially for Asian parents, a lot of them are on these massive WeChat groups. And WeChat is basically like the WhatsApp or the messenger uh, for the Asian community. And so um, there are a lot of different types of events going on. And one of those in the beginning of the year was just like a a parent uh, and college student meetup. Uh, And so this is at this restaurant called Taste of China that I remember. uh, And that was actually the first time that I met Eric. Saw him, we became friends, and then realized that we just ended up taking a lot of the same classes together in computer science. I think Eric actually also was a pre-med, uh, pre-med major to start, and so we had a very similar disillusionment journey. Um, and so, yeah, I knew Eric uh, beginning of college. We'd been friends uh, the entire time, so I've known him for like seven years at this point. Um, you asked me like why I chose to start a company with Eric what about Eric uh, gave me that conviction? Um, We think about this uh, the same way that we think about building out our own team. Obviously, like me and Eric at that time, very much uh, young and inexperienced, no real work experience, still in college at that point. Um, I think what mattered a lot to me and what stood out was more on the initiative. So just the willingness to act and to go do something. a lot of people choose to do different things with their free time. And for me and Eric, it was like hacking on a bunch of random side projects, like a Pokemon Go, uh, like catch catcher tracker or like some type of dating app or something uh, or like a college ride share system. Uh, and so I definitely knew earlier on that Eric would be the person that I end up founding a company with. Nice. And I remember... During the parties that we would have at Atrium, he was your, he was always your plus one. Uh, so it was nice to to get to see you in action in San Francisco too. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> Eric was always my designated driver. Yeah. <laughs> um, so walk us through the different pivots that you guys went through. Why don't you start with YC, the journey in YC with Lang and how you guys started the pivot process. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll go into laying a little bit too. So the inspiration, um, I used to work at Facebook. I was on the payments platform team as an intern there uh, my sophomore year. And it was a full stack project. Um, Facebook internally has this uh, piece of infrastructure called FBT which is basically what Facebook uses to help translate all of the front-end copy on Facebook into different foreign languages. 
And that infra is what let Facebook uh, be multilingual or internationalized super easily without having to build a bunch of different tooling to do that. Uh, and so Eric had also worked at Instagram. Uh, and so we both looked at that and kind of saw an opportunity where we thought that it would be really interesting if we built that out as its own service instead of just an internal tool inside of Facebook. Um, and so that was the inspiration for Lang. Uh, very much a, a startup that started as a tool looking for problems than uh, a problem looking for solutions, I would say. Um, we built the whole tool out, um, raised a Series A, or raised a seed round, not a Series A, um, and then uh, we immediately hit a brick wall right after demo day in summer 19. Um, the brick wall that we hit was that we tried to sell this product to companies outside of YC. Um, and so one of the first uh, hard lessons learned there, um, everyone in YC feels like it's the right move to sell only into YC. You definitely need to have cold uh, customers as opposed to just warm customers. And the reason why, uh, there's this really good book called The Mom Test that talks a lot about this. People that are your friends, uh, they'll definitely give you a ton of encouragement and might fool you into thinking that the product that you're selling to them is valuable uh, instead of telling you the hard truth that uh, it's not something that they need. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we realized that this wasn't uh, what people were looking for the moment after uh, Demo Day when we tried to sell to a lot of companies outside of uh, Y Combinator, and uh, none of them would bite. So for your first few design partners and customers, did did the current YC base pay for Lang, or did you have the impression that, hey, post-fundraise, we'll start monetizing? Yeah, uh, they paid and we also had LOIs with other companies. Mm -hmm. I think the scale of revenue that we were operating on was completely different than what we should have actually been operating on. So looking back, our largest contract uh, working on Lang was 500 bucks a month. And it was by some Series B, I think probably now a Series C company. Mm -hmm. And so... To us being uh, new grads right out into the world, that was a massive contract. Um, looking back, that definitely uh, that definitely was a sign that we're not de delivering enough value there. So, at what point did you and Eric make the decision to to pivot out of Lang? So. Um, one thing we realized, we built this translation tool uh, called Lang. It was mainly around translation workflows. So it made the workflow of requesting or receiving translations for the front-end copy that you had really easy and really seamless. That actually mostly benefited smaller companies that didn't have the engineering force to be able to build that tool internally. Uh, and so... After Demo Day, we sold to more of those types of companies outside of YC and realized they didn't need the product, actually, because those small companies, they're not actually looking to internationalize. They're just trying to dominate whatever market they have uh, that they're currently focused on. Um, 
The other part is just that in order to actually fully serve different languages in different countries, you need、mm-hmm. to have many moving parts. So it's not just the front end copy. You need to have a support team that speaks those languages. You need to have marketing copy in those languages.、Um, you need to be able to do customer success in those languages. And so there's actually a lot more that a company needs to do to serve in a different market than just translating their front end copy.、Um, mm-hmm. And so We went to larger companies, so more like mid market and enterprise customers,、um, and tried to see if they also had a tooling problem. All of those companies had actually already built all of this translation tooling already. And so they were either, either using a provider or had built it in house.、Um, their problem was not the tooling itself, which was relatively easy to do, it was actually the quality of translations.、Um, so Their problem is that it's really hard to get professional translators or to source those people to do high quality in context translations and have those translators also、uh, be super experienced in whatever vertical that company operates in, whether、mm-hmm. it's B2B SaaS or healthcare or blockchain and so on. So you have to actually understand that lingo in different languages.、Yeah. Um, and so what we realized is for us to go solve that kind of a problem. It was very much an operations issue where we would actually have to go to those different countries and find really high quality translators ourselves and form that, that translation team in house.、Uh, and so, me and Eric, being more engineering minded people, that was definitely not our strong suit. And so, that's, that's kind of the moment that we decided this wasn't for us. Okay. And so, and that was, was that month two, month three post demo day? You yeah, guys realized was... quite. Quickly, from what I remember. Yeah, yeah. This was definitely a bit of a quick learning for us. I would say this was probably around October、uh, 2019, so probably around month two of Demo Day, post Demo Day. Yeah.、Okay. So, with that said, with the decision of moving away from Lang, can you walk us through how you guys, the two of you, thought about? Putting together a framework for pivoting and validating ideas quickly.、Um, I think it'd be, yeah, why don't we start there and then we can go into how you guys went from one idea to another idea to another idea. That would yeah. Be,、uh, interesting to dive in. So、um, when we started to pivot, this was probably like November 2019.、Um, we started with, I feel like there are. A lot of lessons out there on how to pivot, and your mileage varies on all of them. And so, we actually started one of the lessons that a lot of people tell us、uh, is that you should focus on personal problems.、Um, the sad part and the really hard truth is that being recent grads,、uh, relatively well off, we really did not have any personal problems that were worth solving.、Uh, and so, Our most immediate personal problem at that time was that it, we didn't have、uh, a startup idea that we were really excited about. <laughs> so, not a great personal problem to solve.、Uh, and we thought that we could solve this by building some kind of tool. And so, we ended up building like a product feedback、uh, interview tool. And so, the thought there was like, well, Maybe if we looked at all the customer conversations that we had when we were building out Lang, we could have figured out some type of customer insight、uh, or some other problem that、uh, most of these companies faced. And that would have given us a room to build something.、Um, yeah, that definitely,、uh, looking back, was not the way to go.、Um, 
We ended up building a product for a market of companies, which are people who are pivoting, uh, which is definitely not a long lasting market. Uh, and then slowly moved more into the generalized product feedback space. Um, and it was operating in that space that we really realized what a crowded uh, TAM was. Um, and so we, we ended up coming up with this system called the 50 customer test, where we basically create a hypothesis. So we think that this segment of people have this problem, and we think that this kind of solution uh, would be able to solve that problem. Um, and so, you know, going from our, our current state, which was an interview annotation tool for people who were pivoting or didn't find an idea yet, more into uh, selling towards companies that had already had an idea. So more of a product feedback and prioritization and road mapping tool. Um, we went and talked to 50 companies uh, in B2B SaaS and basically asked if they had problems organizing product feedback or figuring out uh, what would go on the roadmap. Um, and we got really excited because we talked to 50 of them and 30 of them said they did have problems uh, organizing uh, and prioritizing product features. But of the 30 of them that said that they had that problem, 30 of them also said that they were using a solution or happy with their current solution, whether it was product board or Canny or Notion or just some workflow that they put together in Google Sheets. Um, and so... That was extremely exciting to us because we thought that the total market of people to sell here was 30 out of 50 tech companies. The actual market is really more close to zero out of 50 because everyone that has a problem in that space already has a solution. Uh, hmm. So that was one of the really hard lessons that we learned in the first leg. Nice. Um, and so how did you jump from quickly from tools for product managers to the other subsequent um, pivots to then where you are at Rudder today? Yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting insights that we had after this, um, so just to set the timeline, the entire like interview annotation uh, over to product feedback to trying to sell that tool, uh, that entire cycle was around six months. So I would mm -hmm. say this was probably looking back our longest pivot um, when we went and hit the drawing board back in like July, I think this is July, 2020. Um, mm -hmm. I think we basically had this insight where we realized that, uh, in order to try and find spaces or problem, uh, problem spaces to solve that weren't super crowded, you needed to explore things that were new or things that had changed or had reason to change recently. Um, and so looking basically at the world uh, and and this this is basically like picture the middle of COVID. Um, mm -hmm. The world is entirely on fire. Everything is changing. It was actually quite a really good uh, time to identify changing industries. And so we kind of looked at the world uh, July of 2020 and we saw four, maybe five spaces that we wanted to explore. Um, EdTech was one of them. Uh, mm -hmm. E-commerce was another telehealth was one of them virtual events was one uh and then i think maybe the last one was something around real estate uh or like hospitality since there were a lot of people sort of going nomadic at this time um and so 
we basically went uh, one by one. The plan was basically to go one by one and to try to explore these new industries that had a lot of reason for change and discover a lot of problems in those. Got it. And so what led you to Rudder? It was the EdTech solution. Yeah. Okay. So we Don't actually started, sure. We, we, we started in EdTech. Um, just to paint the picture at that time. So March 2020, this is basically full-on COVID. Uh, all of the schools shut down in the U.S. at that time. Um, no one was prepared in the school system to, to serve a, a high-quality education. And so a lot of this was done virtually. It was done with take-home assignments, etc. And so July 2020, if you imagine, the fall semester is, is about to start. So I think the fall semester usually starts late August or early September. And schools are still announcing that they're shut down. And so a lot of parents at this time are actually wondering what they're going to do with their children, how they're going to give their children a high quality education. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, we saw as an emerging trend at that time um, was was this thing. I don't really like uh, how everyone attaches special words to things, uh, but like there is this trend that I call micropods or micro schools. Uh, and it was basically a bunch of parents um, hiring a teacher to just teach in their backyard and then bringing along uh, another group of uh, similarly aged children to teach. So basically like um, a, a private school, like a mini private school run in your backyard. And so offering personalized education at actually a pretty cheap rate, um, given that uh, you cut the cost with a lot of other kids. Uh, and so that was actually a really interesting trend uh, for us. And so we decided to explore that. Um, we ended up building like a website called Cursive that basically matched parents and teachers uh, and, and students. Um, completely nonprofit, just wanting to learn a lot more and get a lot more involved in the space. Eric and I actually became out-school teachers uh, for like a quarter. Uh, I, so that was a lot that. of fun. Yeah, yeah. So I, so we both taught intro to programming. Uh, I taught intro to Python. To uh, high school students? To uh, middle school students. To middle yeah. school students. I think there were some junior high students too. Um, nice. And so, you know, it was a great experience. We got to help uh, match a lot of people. Uh, and it was a great learning opportunity. Um I think after that stint and those three months, we we ended up uh, working with a lot of edtech vendors, actually. So these are people that are selling books and subscription kits and learning materials. And for them, uh, they actually had problems. They actually had really good problems where their sales were actually going through the roof, given that mm -hmm. um, remote and like in-house in education was becoming a thing. And they were trying to digitize and offer their products on multiple channels. And so they would have like a WooCommerce storefront or a Squarespace storefront or a Shopify store. And they were trying to migrate their catalog information onto all of these other marketplace channels. So Amazon, eBay, Etsy, Walmart, and so on. Um, and so actually Eric and I in helping build uh, this, the tooling needed to migrate that catalog information onto these different channels that's kind of how we discovered Rudder, where we realized we had this meta problem building that tool out, where as a developer building an e-commerce tool, we spent all of our time actually building the, inf the integrations uh, into all of these different platforms instead of the actual business logic of the tool itself. And so doing a much 
deeper dive uh, on on the e-commerce enablement landscape and all of the new tools being built for merchants and small businesses, we realized that every one of those companies that were building those tools had the exact same problem where they each had to build, you know, eight to 10 different integrations into all of the main storefronts and marketplaces out there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's when we decided to focus on this meta problem of just providing a single layer for integrations. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's the beginning of of that rudder journey. It was crazy to to hear this again because um, I remember I think this was I think you were in what you would coin quote pivot hell for two years, two and a half years. Is that yeah, like a year and a almost two years at that almost point, two years, yeah. Which, I mean, kudos to you guys, because I, I think most founders at that point have a really hard time sticking with things. So I'm curious, like, during those 24 months, did you did you ever have the thought of becoming hired or, you know, just stopping this journey? Oh, for sure. So... One of the things uh, early on when Eric and I were very early in our startup journey, one of the main lessons that uh, everyone gives you is don't give up. Um, And when we were starting out at that time, myself internally, it was just it seemed like such a dumb lesson to 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 hear. Don't give up Uh, because, you know, I looked at myself and I was like, well, I feel like I've got some tenacity uh, right. This is going to be super easy. Uh, of course, I'm not going to give up. It's just like planking and, and telling yourself to last another 10 seconds or so. Like, should be easy. Um, only after going through pivot hell, as you described, did I actually understand, you know, it, it's actually really hard to not give up in that moment. Um, people are just wired towards... Uh, you know, contributing something to society or having meaning and purpose in life. And when you're in that state where you build a tool or a service and no one cares about it, that's when the like existential dread actually sinks in and you feel like you've lost meaning in society. Uh, Super deep, super dark place there. And so um, going through it, I would actually give the same advice to anyone in pivot hell, but with, with uh, the caveat that it's definitely not as easy as you'd make it out to be initially. Um, I think, you know, how we thought about it um, at the end of the day, this is like, this is what building a company and like a lasting organization is what Eric and I want to do. Um, and Eric and I are very much the type of people who will just keep bashing our head against the wall until it starts to crack and break. And so to us, absolutely, I think we would have learned a lot if we got aqua hired or, uh, you know, decided to move on to a new thing. Um, for us, it was just the fastest way to get from point A to point B to just keep on going. Uh, and so mm-hmm. that's ultimately why we decided it was the best move to just keep trudging through uh, the maze and trying to find something. Very inspiring to hear. And am I remembering correctly? Did you guys get an offer to be Aquahard at some point? I think uh, people lightly offered it. Mm. There were no numbers involved. We never entertained those conversations just because that's not what we were trying to do here. Great. And so 
For your seed round, you took money from angels as well as a couple of institutional investors. Um, I'm just curious, being on the investing side, how did you balance investor expectations uh, <laughs> with the patience to continue to pivot for almost two years? Yeah. I'd imagine that was a pretty, pretty hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, man, one day I really need to publish all of our investor updates, uh, that, that we've, we've pushed out from day one, Lisa, it, it just, it just describes a really interesting and painful journey that I think would be helpful for a lot of people. Um, what I would say, I think when problems come up, it's actually best to be as honest and straightforward uh, about those problems as you can. So I think earlier on, there was definitely a lot of hesitancy around pushing investor updates or notifying investors that you were failing. Like you would think that everyone that has backed you, um, you know, you always need to be crushing it or you always need to be doing great. And like they would be extremely disappointed if you weren't. Uh, what we ended up realizing a couple of months in is that uh, it's pretty stupid to not ask for help from people who um, just by like economics are there to go help you out. Okay. Uh, and so we basically committed, uh, you know, after the end of 2019 to push out uh, as honest, as brutal or straightforward investor updates as we could just to tell everyone on our progress and um, see who would be willing to help. That's awesome. And was it, uh, were there responses from investors that, that made you realize the types of investors that, you know, really had your back and wanted, you know, you want to work with more and some of the others where you were not so excited to work with? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say there's anyone that we weren't excited to work with. It's more on like passive versus active. So you really could see, you know, when Eric and I were going through hard times in pivot hell, you could definitely see who was actively supporting versus just being a fly on the wall and observing. Um, and I would say it's 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 when a founder goes through those challenges that you actually see who your really valuable investors are. Great. Well, thanks for this. Um, and let's jump into, yeah, let's jump into Rudder. So let's do it. went through the pivots for a year and a half, almost two years. Um, how did you, when did you think was the right time uh, to really double down? So specifically, like, were there early inklings or leading indicators that gave you confidence that like, okay, this pivot, I want to double down and put my full attention to and really see if we can scale it out and make it work. Yeah, I love this question. Um, so one of the things I would say, I think the most high leverage thing that we did in this two-year journey was get a sales coach. Um, and the reason why, when you build a product or you come up with a product and try to sell it and it doesn't work out, um, I think there's some quote from Anna Karenina on... Um, uh, all happy families are the same, but every unhappy family is different in its own way. Um, <laughs> when things don't work out, you have no idea why. Is it just that uh, you're selling poorly or you're not running the sales cycle properly? Or is the timing off? 
or does the customer not actually resonate with the value prop that you're putting out? Um, going through sales coaching and really understanding how to run a sales process removes a lot of that ambiguity. And so once you actually master how you sell something or you have some idea of how to sell something, then you can actually get a lot better signal on whether that product is good as opposed to your sales cycle being shit. Um, and so, you know, number one lesson there is uh, definitely get a sales coach uh, if, if you're like me and Eric and are more engineering minded founders. Um, we realized that this was going to be uh, a really interesting project to work on because um, we ended up closing, I think, almost 100K in contracts in the first two months of selling. And we actually hadn't written a single line of code at that point. Uh, and wow. and this was completely different from every other pivot that we worked on where we'd spend a month building the entire product out, making it super polished, and then bringing it to people and uh, just ha- facing wave after wave of rejection because it didn't want it. Um, here, we literally showed slide decks and we'd close 60K contracts. Uh, and so that's when we realized we're onto something. On the third was this call. On the, on the third call, wow. Yeah. And did they know that the product <laughs> wasn't built yet or how did you navigate <laughs> no, the conversation? No, definitely not. No, no. Definitely a uh, shout out to our early customers for supporting <laughs> us there. <laughs> Now you know. <laughs> wow. It was built in time for them to use it. <laughs> I know, but what was the time frame? I'm s- like the the time of closing to really shipping it out. That yeah, is... yeah. I would say, you know, signing those contracts, we had like a week or two before they actually started using the product. That was actually the easy part, honestly. Eric wow. and I being engineers, we just worked day and night to actually get a working MVP of the product out into their hands by the time that they were starting. Uh-huh. And then just acted like, you know, we had had this for, for years. <laughs> wow. Kudos to you guys. Wait, so how many customers, how many customers uh, did you sign of the 100K in commits? Uh, that 100K, I would say that was like three or four customers. Three or four customers, yeah. man. Kudos. That's great. Yeah. Um, and so, okay. So at the time, it was two of you guys just coding day and night to get this out. So at one, what, what point? Did you, did you realize like, hey, we really need to think about scaling our team? Because yeah. I would imagine that after going through 18 months of like, hey, we just need to be as scrappy as possible to survive, having the mindset of, okay, now we're making money, we kind of need to think about hiring now and really using capital to grow faster. Like how, tell me how you guys, well, one, shifted mentalities and two, realized that time was was there. Yeah, I think comparatively, um, we definitely hired a lot later than we should have. And mm-hmm. and that's that's absolutely to your point, Lisa. Uh, we were definitely still in ramen survival mode where for two years, you know, after raising the seed round, we had close to zero revenue on anything. And so we really wanted to make that money last and just did not want to hire. Um, I would say it's definitely a lot more of like a visceral thing than it is uh, a tactical thing where at some point we were just fielding so many requests and spending so much time writing code and selling at the same time that there was just not enough uh, time between me and Eric to do everything. And so that was the moment that we felt uh, like a visceral need to start bringing on more people to our team. And 
when you decided to bring on your first few hires, how did you think about building the team out? Be it on the engineering side, the sales side, product side, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, for us, you know, being engineering minded founders, we're building a data infrastructure tool. It's very heavy uh, engineering. And so I think our first, I think our first like eight hires were all engineering. Uh, and so even to even today, we just have an extremely heavy engineering and product team compared to our go to market teams. Um, so we definitely uh, index very highly on engineering. Um, I think the other thing, you know, going back to what I said earlier, just the same way uh, that Eric and I figured out that we would be right uh, for each other. I think when we think about bringing other people on our team the core question that ends up deciding yes or no at the end of the day is would I, or would Eric co-found a company with that person? Um, mm-hmm. And so exactly the same that in, in, in the same way that I chose uh, Eric or we chose each other, we index a lot on learning ability, uh, hunger, ambition, growth rate, uh, way more than uh, years of previous experience, languages that they know or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That's a high bar. Yeah, we have to keep the bar high. <laughs> um, for sure. And, you know, t- talking about like the go-to-market team, I think this was last August where, do you remember when we were sitting down and you're like, hey, how many A's do I need to make it to two million <laughs> ARR? You know, maybe if I do back the envelope calculations, that's like one, one and a half or maybe two at most. Yeah. <laughs> Fast forward to today. Do you think that, math was correct or do you do you think that you were being too constrained yeah that math was totally wrong i i think um definitely like there's there's a formula to to calculating this looking at um amount of deals closed a month and stuff like that um we definitely prefer to have uh people on our sales team that are a lot higher hitting uh rather than have a lot more bodies and so we really index on getting really good people on our team instead of a lot of people. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we ended up breaking that goal without any AEs, actually. Um, and so, yeah, we were definitely wrong on those calculations. I mean, that was 100% founder-led sales? Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, is it still majority founder-led sales? Or have you since passed the baton? Yeah, yeah. We we brought our first AE on in January. So I would still... it's. It's still mostly founder-led sales. Cool. Um, and for context, can you talk about what Rudder is solving for the merchants, for the platforms, and the developers? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, we should have covered this way earlier on. Um, so uh, in terms of the problem that Rudder is solving, um, going back to uh, this inventory management tool that Eric and I were building for these edtech vendors, we basically built a tool that would help them move their catalog information across all of the different marketplace channels. Uh, And in building that tool out, we realized we spent 90% of our time actually building the platform integrations. So like the APIs into Amazon or the APIs into eBay out or the APIs migrating information from Squarespace. Um, And so realized that a lot of companies that built commerce tools had that same problem and decided to just build that integrations layer. So 
Rudder is basically just a universal API and middleware for reading and writing data across any commerce or revenue platform. So a storefront, a marketplace, a payment processor, or an accounting platform. Um, and we actually sell to any company that sells to merchants or SMBs or deals with commerce in some way. And the problem that they have is that the people that they are selling to, so the merchants or the SMBs, are on all of these different types of platforms that they use as their system of record. And each one of those platforms has a different API, a different way to authenticate or sync data. And so we basically abstract all of that away into a single API and schema that those companies can use. What would you say the future of Rudder is once the team builds out all the integrations and data pipelines? Yeah, um, I, I think of this a lot in terms of mission and vision. Uh, so mission is a lot more of, of the tangibles. And then the vision is a lot more abstract on like, where do we want to be, you know, 10, 100 years or so from now. Um, in terms of mission, the mission is basically to create new commerce experiences. And so there are a ton of different tools out there uh, serving merchants and small businesses, a lot of fintech tools as well. Neobanks coming out business credit cards, business lending, business insurance. Um, and so we basically want to be the data layer uh, and the glue that connects all of those different types of financial or non-financial tools with all of the merchant platforms and small business platforms that are out there. Um, the first step is definitely just building the pipes. So getting full connectivity, building all the integrations that we need to be building, uh, scaling those up, um, I would say what comes next after that is basically building uh, APIs on top of our existing API. So enriching the data that comes through these pipelines, providing better functionality via this API uh, than you would otherwise get on the native platform. Those are the things that we have planned. Exciting. Um, and what is, what's in store for the next six months? What are you guys thinking about hitting in terms of milestones? Yeah, it's just build, build, build. So um, we have just extremely aggressive targets on number of platforms that we're launching. I would say that there's a lot of really interesting infra challenges that go with scaling and handling hundreds of thousands of authentications and store connections that are out there. Um, if you think of it, you're syncing data from a platform and all of this needs to be real time. It needs to be normalized correctly. You can't have duplicate data or missing data. And then for a lot of the companies that we work with, they want this data as fast as humanly possible. And so how we do this in scale is a really hard problem uh, engineering wise. Um, so yeah, I would say it's just building the product out, uh, scaling our infrastructure, uh, enabling a lot of new platforms. Great. And before we wrap up, the final topic I want to touch on is your recent Series A fundraise. Um, so you raised your seed round in yeah. August of 2019, a while ago. Uh, so yeah. heading into this market, what was your impression since the funding environment <laughs> two and a half years ago? Uh, what are the first um, things that come to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say after like late January, early February, who knows? Uh, I'm not you know, we're not in the funding environment at that point anymore. Um, it was definitely, I would say fundraising has gotten way more aggressive in the last two years than when we started out in 2019. Aggressive in what way? 
just yeah there is a lot of capital floating around uh Mm -hmm. and oh yeah there's a lot of capital to be allocated and so like yeah um yeah okay let me let me delve quickly through that so walk us walk us through how the process came to be or actually not much of a process because as i understand it was more of a preemptive motion or or maybe i was wrong did you guys have i would say it was basically preemptive uh you know we announced our raise and then we basically concluded within the week and so we had an extremely fast fundraising process um i think part of what made that super fast is that a lot of people that we were talking to they had done their due diligence on our company Mm -hmm. and our customers well ahead of time and so the moment that uh, we decided that we were going to raise our Series A, there was basically no work involved uh, and no extra steps involved. Like they were ready, they knew, they had conviction on on the product that we were building and its future. Hmm. Got it. And so, for you, was it just having monthly catch-ups with these investors to understand founder investor fit, or how how did you develop relationships with these these folks? Um, I would say that our experience was a little bit different. Uh, we, we did not, uh, develop a bunch of relationships with investors prior. I think what really worked for us and what we want to continue doing is just being as heads down as we can and working on building a good product because Mm -hmm. ultimately word of mouth is probably the most powerful thing here. Uh, and so as long as you focus on building a product that people love, everyone in the ecosystem will eventually hear about it. So because it's Series A, this is your first time getting a board member. Um, <laughs> and yeah. because the fundraise process was so accelerated, like what qualities and actions did you cherish about the investors that were chasing you? And what did you, and consequently, what did you not care for? Um, What did we care about? I think... This product is is very much a, a new product operating in this space. And so we really cared about uh, how well aligned uh, the investor that we worked with was to our future vision. So mm-hmm. how well did they understand the product uh, and how well did they understand the future that we were trying to achieve? And so I think head and shoulders beyond everything else that we were looking for, that was really the most important thing for us picking a partner to work with. Got it. And was there anything that you didn't really care for during the fundraise process that um, that investors would do or, or uh, yeah, that investors would do? Yeah. <laughs> um, anything that we didn't really care for? Um, I would say like no one we talked to, you know, just describing the crazy fundraising environment, no one we talked to had constraints on amount of capital that they were offering. So that was definitely not a worry for us. <laughs> cool. And then finally, what what's the hardest part of your job? Ooh. So Elon, I asked this because I think of the quote that um that Elon Musk says, which is like running a startup is like chewing glass and also staring into the abyss. So what parts do you love about it? And what parts do you think is like chewing glass? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, let me think, let me think on that for like 10 seconds, actually. Sure. <laughs> Take your time. 
I think that um, I feel like this might be a non-answer, but the hardest parts are definitely the most rewarding. I would I would say the chewing glass part. There's just so much work to do. Um, everything's on fire right now. Servers on fire. Customers are coming into the door faster than we can handle. We need to be hiring like a billion people. Um, all of that takes time. All of that takes energy. It's just it's just a very exhaustive job um but i think you know the the upsides of, of of doing something like this outweigh the exhaustion or the amount of energy required um but like a hundred times over um mm-hmm. i would say what's what's been so great um the first is just you know being able to unite uh, a team around a common vision and then being able to uh, have everyone push toward that is, I find, extremely fulfilling. Um, and I think the second one, which is probably more important, um, yeah, like, I mean, you know, even despite all of the work that uh, I would have to do, I would say that there's no way we would get here without every single person on our team. Uh, I have w- arguably the easiest job. All I have to do is talk to people uh, and, and, you know, coordinate people and that's it. Um, are you still coding or I'm not coding. I, not I stopped coding. coding like four months ago. Okay. Um, I still it. review a PR from time to time, uh, <laughs> but definitely not writing code anymore. Um, I think what, what makes starting a company so fun um, is that you get to work with some of the smartest people out there uh, and some of the most ambitious and talented people. And you get to choose uh, what type of person do you want to work with? And so it's just so great, you know, going into meetings with the team and always feeling like the dumbest person in the room. I'd never want to change that. That's awesome to hear. And so finally, Peter, I'm going to hand it over to you. Give the audience a plug for Rudder. So who are you looking to hire? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say we're at a really interesting point where product is entering hyper growth. We're growing way faster than we can handle there are actually a lot of really interesting uh, technical challenges, both on the infrastructure side and on the platform side. So it's not just building out integrations one by one. We're really trying to figure out how we can do that at scale and how we can templatize. And then in the future, the most interesting challenge is a lot around what our vision is, which is organizing the world's commerce data. There is a lot of stuff that we can do around enriching data, categorizing, tagging information that would be extremely valuable towards the rest of the commerce ecosystem that we plan on doing. Um, So that preface just goes to show we're hiring a ton of people in engineering across the board, platform engineers, infrastructure engineers. If you're more customer facing than deployed engineers or support engineers. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, just, just hires across the board. So we really need a better success team. We really need that to be fleshed out more. We're looking for uh, two or three people within growth marketing uh, and then probably one or two salespeople as well. Awesome. And I will also put the relevant links down below. So, Peter. Thanks a lot, Lisa. And send them over. Um, will do. I think that's it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Peter for joining um, and chatting. It's always a pleasure to get to catch up with you. Um, and so, so proud and excited about how far you've come since since atrium days and college days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Thanks so much, Lisa. I mean, it's been great having you along for the ride. Um, so thanks so much for your support. This was a ton of fun. Let's do this again sometime. All right. Yeah. Thank you. And have a great week. And when this podcast launched, you would have already announced your Series A fundraise, which is going to be exciting. So yeah, looking forward to that. And thank you, viewers, as well. Take care. Thanks, Lisa. Bye.